Welcome to the Go Lead Everything podcast. Do you aspire to become the best leader you can be? Then come along with me and GLE. Faith, love, integrity, courage. Four key values of great leaders all around the world. I'm Phil Swanson, and I'm on a mission to bring you leaders from all walks of life and arm you with the tools and mindset to lead effectively in whatever you are called to do. Are you ready? Because it's time to go lead everything. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to GLE. And we've got a very special guest for you today. This is my big brother who needs no introduction, the big Swanson himself, Stephen Swanson, the firstborn of the Swanson clan. And uh, this is a special week because my baby girl was born last week and my big brother, his wife and their kids decided to drive on down and celebrate with us. So we love having him here. Welcome, Stephen, and welcome to GLE, my man. Very glad to be here. Yeah, we were... uh... We drove down for my wife's grandmother's funeral, got there, went to bed in South Arkansas from Colorado, woke up the next morning to a slew of text messages from Phil <laughs> that his daughter was born six weeks early. Right. So we, uh, These things can't be there. planned. You yeah, know? We stayed there through the thing and then just decided I can work remotely, remotely. And we'll just come on to Houston. Yeah, we love so it. we're here. We're glad you're here, man. Wouldn't miss it for the world. Glad you're here. And we've been meaning to do a podcast, too. You wanted episode 20, I know. That was your old high school number. But uh, you know, we'll have to do a, another episode number. But yeah, it'll be just as a, good. That's all right. Numbers don't mean anything. <laughs> exactly. Says all the numerologists everywhere. Yeah. So, Stephen, we have a long history together. This is a podcast that I prepared zero for, which is a first. And and I, I disagree. I think this is the one he's the most prepared for out of all of his podcasts thus far. And I think you may be right. I think you may be right. So I want to start off by giving you an opportunity to share your story and tell our listeners a little bit about Steven Swanson and how he got to where he is today. In high school, I was generally inclined toward the math and the sciences. We had a father in the oil and gas business who studied civil engineering in college. And I decided, wanted to pursue engineering. Wasn't even 100% sold on engineering. Really wanted to play college football. Really liked the idea of going to the University of Missouri or Rolla, where we had a couple uncles go play football and study engineering. And was very fortunate uh, fortunate enough to get an athletic scholarship there and wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do as a career, but I knew someone who was successful with civil engineering that was my father. And I knew that civil engineering had a very broad applicability across several industries. And so it seemed like, you know, the logical choice for someone who wasn't really decided with the industry or career path I wanted to go, but knew they wanted to do engineering. And so I majored in civil engineering in college and through connections through dad, I got internships in industry 
uh, with a smaller operator in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and really fell in love with the oil and gas energy business and decided that's what I wanted to do and did two internships with that company, had a entry-level job lined up after college. And for those of you who were professionals in the end of 08, early 09 timeframe, you may remember what oil and natural gas prices did at that time. And as a 21-year-old, 22-year-old kid about to graduate, I did not listen to any of the advice I gotten from my dad or uncles that were working. It was, even if you have a job lined up, don't stop looking for jobs. Put your resume out there. Keep interviewing. You never know if something's go better is going along. And I was just like, I'm going to do this. So when natural gas prices fell from, you know, $12 to $2, that job dried up. And I very humbly went and waited tables for a few months after graduation until I hired on with a small engineering consulting firm in the oil and gas business. So let's focus on that for a minute because I know that's something I've heard you say a bunch of times and anybody that knows you well has probably heard you allude to your time as a server for restaurants, your, your days working at McDonald's, yeah, worked at a McDonald's chemical factory, college. you know, you've worked some dirty jobs. What about that experience really affected you and I know one statement that you've made that resonates in my head is everybody should have to wait tables at some point in their life. And I do talk about, talk about why you say that. Cause I haven't done that. I've been for whatever reason, never had the opportunity to do that. I've always been doing other things, but I, I know you feel strongly about that. So why is that? Yeah, I would say if I, if I was put in charge of everyone, I would say everybody has to wait tables for three months and everybody has to work fast food for three months at some point as they're growing up. I think it changes your perspective or it, it at least adds to your perspective. It is humbling. They call it the service industry because you are a servant to others and you realize very quickly that people's integrity, just the way they treat others is, is very different. It puts you on the receiving end of people all along the spectrum of, of treating others, whether they treat others very poorly or treat others very well. And it makes you very, very clear on which end of that spectrum you want to be on. It also teaches you things like most of the things you get mad at your waiter for are really the kitchen's fault. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I know that time and time again, when we're out to dinner, you're great at leading a dinner, by the way. Um, Steven had the opportunity to work at some pretty high class, high caliber restaurants. There's a certain skill set that goes along with understanding how to lead a dinner well and make it an enjoyable experience for a table of people. Talk a little bit about how not only the experience of being a servant, because everybody who watches this show knows I'm into servant leadership. And I think, you know, that attitude of service should not be one we only take to the service industry. It's, it's, an, oh, it's, exactly. a, it's an attitude we should be taking to every industry. We're here to serve other people, any business owner, anybody who's a leader in any sort of corporate role, 
you're there to serve your people. You're there to serve your customers. It's a service oriented mindset when it comes to leadership. And when it comes to leading a dinner or, you know, leading a table of people as a, a server, what's in your mind as you go about doing that, that sort of helps you do that really well? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start by comparing it to the difference between having assigned seats at a wedding reception and free for all seating at a wedding reception. It is about taking ownership of the things that shouldn't cloud the good time people are having. When somebody comes into a wedding reception and there's no assigned seats and especially the people that don't know a lot of people that you invite in your wedding, it, it leaves you know, small groups, you know, small clusters of one seat at a table and one seat over here. And it makes people worry about who are we going to sit by? Should we sit by them? Should we sit by them? Instead of letting them focus on enjoying the dinner, enjoying the party, enjoying the music and enjoying the festivities. And so just that little bit of unclarity or that little decision that you put on somebody else really stresses some people out. I mean, I know it, it bothers me and because I'm an introvert. Like, I don't want to have to think about that. Once I sit down in a spot, it doesn't matter who's there. I can, you know, drinks are flowing. It's a wedding or something. You can have fun with anybody in that environment. So take that burden off your guests and let them enjoy the things they're supposed to enjoy. This is so interesting because this week I posted a video about your strengths and some of the insecurities I've dealt with trying to communicate my strengths in a way where I didn't seem cocky or arrogant or, you know, I had insecurity about really being honest about what I was good at and uh, coming across cocky. I would, I would deliberately, you know, talk myself down, which isn't what you need to do. And it was amazing because uh, Ed Milet had this guy Jay Shetty on his podcast this week, and it was a great episode. Go check it out if you haven't checked it out, but they were talking about how insecurity is really another alternate form of ego and mm -hmm. what, what you just described to me. I really like what you said there. Insecurity, another form of ego. That's well, really good. Yeah, and they, they touched on this. And um, it's really an internally focused mindset, mm -hmm. which, is, which is an ego mindset. And I think what good leaders do and what you're describing, it sounds to me like what you're doing is taking people's ego out of it. You're not giving them time to go internal to their ego. Yeah. And you're keeping them focused on the moment, focused external on what's around them. And I think that's what good leaders do. Yeah, they can, agree. they can keep their people in a mindset of service and external. They're so occupied with what they're doing, what needs to be done and where we're going and what we're trying to accomplish. They don't have time to focus internal on ego. Mm -hmm. I love that. It reminds me of leading a dinner, especially when you're at a business dinner and nobody knows who's going to, who's going to put it on their P card. Um, I like to always, you know, unless it's against company policy and it has to be somebody else at the table that, you know, is higher in the org chart than I am. I always do it because that is such an uncomfortable feeling. And then, and then it comes down to like the server shows up. Can I get anybody something to drink besides water? And everybody's like, is everybody at the table cool with ordering alcohol? And so I always order a drink. Sure. And then the waitress will ask or waiter will ask, um, does anybody want appetizers? And there's that moment where everybody's like, do you want appetizers? Should we get like money? The answer to that question is always yes. Everybody wants appetizers. 
Nobody doesn't want appetizers. So I always say, yeah, give us just a minute and we'll pick two or three, you know, depending on how many people are there. Then they leave and nobody has to make a decision about are we going to get appetizers. It's now I look at the appetizer list and what do I want? And it's much easier to move the dinner forward sure. from that from that point. Yeah, that's great advice. And we were blessed too having parents that, especially our mother, who I mean, she used to read us Emily Post etiquette books as children. And I don't know if many children grew up with that, <laughs> but I don't know. We that. sure did, and uh, it really ended up being a blessing. I think you know, if for you leaders out there that have to entertain and go out to dinner and lead dinners knowing that etiquette and knowing how to do that effectively is huge and experience as a server and seeing their perspective on how to run a dinner is also valuable experience for anybody who's going to be leading a dinner at some point. The downside of having been a server is now whenever I go out to eat and the server can't remember what everybody orders and the server comes is like, okay, who had the fish? You're a service snob. I now know without trying what everybody at the dinner ordered. And so I'm always the one like that goes over there. I goes over there. You've become a service snob. That's what it is. That's what it is. Uh, so during your story, I'm surprised, but you left out sports like altogether in your life story. And I know sure. sports and athletics was a huge aspect of your life and development as an individual. So talk about the role sports played and maybe talk about the challenge of becoming a college athlete that maybe didn't have the career they wanted. Cause I think, you know, I had similar experience in, in university and, you know, we were coming from really excelling at the high school level. Mm. So talk about your mental challenges, maybe some of the ego insecurities and things you've dealt with through your sports career. I was a two way starter on varsity football, made varsity baseball freshman year, played basketball through junior year, didn't play basketball senior year because I switched schools and had to take a, that certain time off before I could play sports again. And that, at least in Michigan, they do that to prevent recruiting across high schools. But yeah, sports was, um, I mean, a big part of my identity. And I mean, the reason I didn't mention it heavily was because I, I don't typically think about sports in my professional career anymore, or how it's influenced my career anymore. I do think my athletics experience played a huge part in who I am because of how going from the high school star athlete or whatever you want to call it to a ride the bench for three years and quit college football player really changed my identity, humbled me. You've heard us as a family say, God won't give you anything your faith can't handle over and over and over. But I, I know now that sports stardom in college was not something my faith could handle and the Lord chasteneth every son he receiveth. And my chastening was no, you don't get that. You get to do what I've called you to do. And I love that. If I was on Bradley's show, I'd be dropping a bomb right now. Cause I think that is uh, so wise and anybody who's from a Christian background and, and maybe even other backgrounds can also relate that, you don't really end up where you think you're going to go and you have this image in your head and we all have a vision and we all have goals and we all kind of, you know, have somewhere we want to be. And I remember getting interviewed when I was hired in my corporate role that they asked me, where, where do you see yourself in five years? And I answered, 
you know, five years ago, I didn't see myself sitting here. And if I gave you an answer today, I probably wouldn't be there in five years. To your point, your story isn't necessarily going to play out exactly like you have it planned. And that's okay. Yeah. That's perfectly okay. Cause guess yeah. what? Now that you're here, you see that perspective yeah. of this is, I know exactly why I'm here. Yeah. I'm well, exactly where I need to be. And the same thing just happened to me in my professional career. So I ended my story with my first job, small engineering firm, and got hired away to a fairly well-known, in at least in the industry, EMP company. I loved it there. I probably never would have left. I had a great boss there. It was a great culture while I was there. It was the first place I'd worked that felt like a high school where everybody was like real gung-ho about all the sports teams and like team spirit. Like everybody wanted to wear the t-shirt. And now we have a, a little brother who's an Aggie. So yeah, it's like so, that times 10. Yeah. <laughs> and, but then I got merged away and I went to that new company and I, I wasn't as happy there. And so I started looking around ended up working for a midstream company in Oklahoma for a couple of years, saw no real career growth opportunities there. I started looking around. I'm now working for Noble Energy um, in Colorado. I love it there. It was the next place I've worked that it felt like team spirit. Like everybody that, lives in, at least in that Colorado business unit, we like noble is, um, you know, the noble neighbor idea where we're involved in the community and everybody's proud to wear noble garb out. They were part of a big acquisition recently too, huh? And now we are in the process of finalizing being bought by Chevron. And so I went from working for a small engineering consulting firm with 35 people tops to working for the largest oil and gas major in the world. And I never would have even tried to go work for a major. Just didn't think it was something I wanted to do. And again, God was like, no, you're going to go do this. Yeah, it's amazing to see how it works in our lives. And when I think about where we come from in our family, it's just amazingly ironic that our father had a civil degree, ended up doing his thing in energy you got your civil degree, ended up doing your thing in energy, did your sports thing for a little while, didn't pan out. I kind of did the same thing. And you hear people talk about, you'll end up being an average of the five people you are closest to as far as, you know, status, whatever you do. And it's just so true. And, you know, I'm, I don't mean that in a bad way at all. But I think it, it does emphasize how important it is. You know, if you have certain goals and you have certain aspirations, you need to be very conscious of how you're spending your time and who you choose to hang around and get influenced by. It's something we always hear, heard growing up, you know, you're, you're going to end up like your friends and, and who you hang around and you are who you hang around. So you're a family man, Stephen. Talk about fatherhood. Talk about how fatherhood has influenced your perspective on being a leader or, or just how you handle other situations in your life? I think it's helped with my patience. It's really helped with my understanding of my, of my faith. We're reading Bible stories with Grace. She's three. My youngest is one. If you read a, a Bible story book, like, like we did growing up, the Eggemeyer's Bible story book, that Old Testament portion, like literally for the whole middle of that that book the story starts with and israel fell away from faith in the lord again <laughs> and it's like oh my gosh how many times is god gonna go 
teachers are a lesson and bring them back. And, and it wasn't until, and I, I swear, I just thought about this just a couple of weeks ago, this epiphany and God always calls Israel, his son, the nation, his son. And I think about grace and Graham and how many times they would have to disobey me for me not to do everything to correct their path and bring them back close to me again. And there's not a number of times. And I'd never really thought through that until I had kids. That's so special. And I love the fatherhood metaphor when it comes to leadership, because like you just said, there's not, there's nothing you wouldn't do to bring them back. And it's that sacrificial, like, Hey, I'm willing to even sacrifice my own son for you all. It's that total sacrificial approach of, I will do whatever is needed, whatever it takes to bring you around. I mean, that is leadership in the most perfect way in my perspective, you know, as a new father myself, I haven't had much time to dwell on it, but it'll come. I can only imagine you know, only imagine how that love grows. And, you know, you got the story of the prodigal son who I was talking with Eric Dupree on my podcast the other day about the story of the prodigal son. And, you know, no matter what he does, the father comes back and welcomes him with open arms and Mm -hmm. brings him back in. It's absolutely perfect. This actually reminded me of something I wanted to get your perspective on because the, the parent analogy was thrown at me person on my team, I was trying to give somebody some critical feedback, not negative feedback, but we were trying to meet a certain objective and I was trying to communicate the objective and this person was trying to deliver the objective and and missing the mark. And I was trying to give critical feedback on here's what you need to do differently to meet the objective. And they told me that I am a perfectionist. And they were worried. This person was older than me, had grown children. They were worried. They need. They felt the need to warn me because they were worried I was going to be really mad at my children if they didn't get straight A's all the time. <laughs> and my response was, this isn't a parent-child relationship. I'm not rearing you. Like, we are paying you for straight A's. You're not giving me straight A's. We pay for straight A's. Sure. And I've never had something like that thrown back in my face before. So it brings to mind several things. One is a perspective from Gary V, where he says, and his and I'm, I may not be accurately paraphrasing him, but basically when people, business owners, whatever are, have some sort of frustration with their people that, Hey, you know, they're not working as hard as, as I am, or, you know, they're not, they're not, you know, putting in the same time and energy and focus that I am. And like something's wrong with them. Well, Hey, guess what? You know, you're the business owner. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. for you to expect someone working for you to have that same energy and focus and drive of you Mm -hmm. is just on, it's not a realistic expectation would be one perspective that came to mind. I'm not saying that applied here. I also think too, when someone accuses another person, 
I think it's often a projection of something inside themselves and, and an insecurity maybe that they have or an ego thing that they have. And that so, was my, that was my take. You're the farthest thing in my mind from a perfectionist. I mean, we, I that's, that was both of us, that's both of us thought. are, we made it through <laughs> college with C's and whatever, you know, like, you know, we're definitely not perfectionists. Our, our younger brother is an absolute stud who could, he's not a perfectionist either, but he's, close much closer than we are I think. <laughs> um yeah so that was one thing that came to mind it's like wow so they think you're a perfectionist because that that's not something i would ever label you so she must not know you very well was another thing that came to mind and um you know i think from a perfectionist standpoint and i think maybe even gary v also and, and others talk about perfectionism they might have in that in my lap podcast they might i think they might have touched on this too how perfectionism is another ego issue because at some level if you're going to move forward you need to move forward and being perfect at some level that you know there's a point of that diminishing return where you're not getting any value from it and i i think one of the things that made me very successful in school because i you know i ended up with decent gpa even though i wasn't a perfectionist i was able to figure out what i had to do you know, I was able, I was able to do enough and figure out, okay, this is what needs to be done to get the result. Yeah. And it wasn't, I'm I'm not going to, I'm not going to just keep working to get an A or whatever. It's like, well, this is what I need to do. I did it. That's good enough. I can move on and do these other things. And I think when leaders get really stuck, especially sometimes in their people, and I'm not saying you did in this instance, but you know, sometimes I think we expect our people to do and produce a product like we would produce. And it, it's really not a fair expectation of them. Yeah. And that's true. And I've, I've struggled with that personally. I, I have struggled with delegation for that reason. Like it's just going to take, it's going to be ways if I just do this myself. That's, that's been a big struggle for me. That is that ego. Yeah. And I've struggled with it too. It's that mm-hmm. ego that's like, you know, you think you do things so good. And when I say you, I mean me, you know, it's, it's a, it's an ego problem and being able to really let go and let people do things their way. And, you know, if you can't do that, you're never going to be able to be successful as a leader. Let your people be free to do things their way. I've been fortunate enough to have a couple of great leaders who, who pushed me on that to let that go. And like, yeah, it may not be the most efficient way, to accomplish the goal, but there are, there is value added external to that goal sure. that, that is worth getting by delegating. Yeah. 10 people doing 10 tasks at 80% is better than you trying to do a hundred tasks at a hundred percent where you're not going to be able to do them all. Yeah. Yep. So it's a, it's a balance, right? And, and it's always that risk calculation. We as engineers, we're taught to engineer out the risk. And this is something that, you know, now that we've talked a lot about real estate and, you know, we're exploring other things that, you know, we've thought about for a long time. It's, it's nerve. It's really like funny how uncomfortable it is to take these risks. But when you really think about it, and this is the question that I hear on, on podcasts and all these business owners, they always go back to like, what is the worst that could happen? And when you really think about the risk of decisions, and I think about this so often in day to day when 
people are talking about problems or, you know, something that we need to discuss and we're trying to find a solution. What is the worst that can happen if someone makes a decision and we move forward? That should always be a question that's in the back of every leader's mind in meetings or in, in rooms. It's like, okay, we're in here. We need to move this forward. Can we move this forward? If we do, if we were to move forward with this way or that way, what is the worst mm-hmm. that could happen? Yeah. And at some level, even if, you know, maybe people are uncomfortable or maybe people don't see all those risks, you got to move. And that, you know, that motion, it's like we're afraid to fail, but failing might have no consequence. Yeah. Do you feel that at all as an engineer with, with that experience? Like, do you have a fear of failure? I'm getting better. I think being comfortable with the 80% answer and running and not making it perfect before you start adding value. I also had a, uh, one of my directors at work did a, gave a great example of um, big efforts are like, or like sprints, like don't jog the whole thing, sprint and then rest, like make a big, make a, you know, dig, get a real quick, big chunk and then let that run for a little bit and then rest. And then once you're recovered, that's up and running, do another sprint. Have you ever heard of the agile project management philosophy? It's kind I, am of a not, buzz- I am not familiar with that term. So agile is kind of a buzzword these days and they actually use that term. They talk about work packages in sprints and you, you form uh, Oh, I can't even remember the term for it, but you form small teams basically. And, and it's used a lot in software development because in modern day, it technology is so advanced. You can do so much, so much more quickly so it's okay, like maybe if you take a step and it doesn't work out and then you got to readjust. So you basically have a lot of small sprints that you identify mm. and it allows you to move a lot more quickly instead of like developing a big scope Yeah, and then trying to like execute that scope. And that takes you like two years and then you get to the end and your product doesn't look like what you wanted it to look like. Yeah. Or somebody else has already done something better. Right. Because of the way the software is. Right. So yeah. that's, that's sort of the agile mentality. And, and mm-hmm. with the nature of technology these days, it's very effective for like software development. You know, I know in other aspects, many implement it in project development. Like you said, those, it, those sprints like that, that is an agile philosophy of, Hey, let's, let's try to package up this work instead of doing some big product. Mm-hmm. Let's say, Hey, here's a small package. Let's go do that. And I think some people get lost in moving forward because they probably haven't taken the time to slow down and even identify like what those packages might be. Mm-hmm. What are we really trying to accomplish? What's the vision? What's that 20% that's going to get us 80% of the way there. Can we take that 20% package it and move forward with it? Do I really got to involve 20 people or could I maybe produce an 80% product with only four and get it done in like a 10th of the time? Mm-hmm. And just move. And then if it's wrong, what's the risk of that failure? You know, I, we just get stuck there. It's like people don't want to fail and yeah, then, they, like, then they don't do anything. In, you know, in, in, uh, just in my, in my particular area of expertise, I think like even if the program is way off, if you're trying to develop, say, a new um, maintenance program, even if your program is only... 10% of what it needs to be, you still moved the needle towards more reliable equipment, right? 
So why not just start running? Yeah, we so often get stuck and and like, yeah. what are we waiting on? Yeah, like like go. Yeah. But so we've touched on faith, and obviously in our life, faith's been a huge role. We mm-hmm. grew up with parents that had us in God's word every single day and trained us and taught us. And we learned the catechism and we learned the six chief parts of the Christian faith and memorized scripture. And how has your faith played a role in your life? There are so many ways. (laughs) Um, My faith has made my personal life what it is it has led me to prioritize things like family home wife having children raising children it has made me much less anxious about stuff going on in the world problems at work problems at home i've never had a career decision where god didn't make the choice obvious and i know it's God making the choice obvious because of my faith from a professional standpoint. I think it's, it's made me humble. You know, it's hard to, to narrow down an answer. Like it's intertwined into so much. I don't know how to put into words what a piece of my life would be without my faith to say like it's influenced this way because without it, it would be this. That's a hard question to answer on the fly you know what i mean i do know what you mean something that i struggled with a lot early in my corporate career was compartmentalization of my lives i don't know if you've ever dealt with this where so i didn't kind of had a i was really good at it from the beginning good at what compartmentalizing what'd you compartmentalize so like everything about work literally everything about work was in that building that was work sure and like when I left that place, I was home and it was personal lifetime. And so, that's gone now. Yeah. So I think that's, weird. yeah, I think that's good. And I went through that same thing. Like for whatever reason, I thought that for some reason I, you know, and I remember my wife when she really got to know me outside of work, she was like, I never would have guessed you were like this. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Cause I don't, I never, sh- I had a wall up yeah. in my corporate role that yeah. this is it's like, though. Hey, I'm, I'm here to work. People probably know me as a super serious guy. I don't joke around a lot at work. I probably, that's, that's one of my faults. I need to get better at joking around a little bit, lighten up. It's because I was there to work. That was like a mentality I had of, okay, this is business Phil. I'm here to work. Let's work. Yeah. And my personal life was just separate. And then I, married a coworker, <laughs> which kind of ruined that. But, yeah. you know, that wasn't planned and it was actually something I fought. It almost ruined our relationship, but thanks yeah. be to God, it ended up working out and, and um, I'll go as you far can't as, help where you meet him. I'll go as far as to say, like, my, my walks were different. I remember dad giving me advice about playing racquetball with a coworker and after they got done, he was like, man, I've never seen you move like that. You're so fast and like really getting after it. And he was like, why does that surprise you? Like I was an athlete. <laughs> and he's like, well, you know, at work, you just kind of saunter all the time. And like from that moment, 
he was like, I always walked Fast. like I had somewhere to be quickly. And he gave me that advice. I really took it to heart and it worked. I walked like I, I, to this day, I still walk very briskly because I always want to give the impression that I'm like not fiddle farting around on company time. I love that. Walk but with like, a purpose. But like, I love that. I don't think like I leave that building. I, I bet you I don't walk like that. Like I don't. I don't do that in personal life. Like that's very compartmentalized, like <laughs> down to my walk. Well, and COVID's actually been an interesting experience because you, you got your video conferences, you're sitting in your home, you know, some people have continued getting up, showering every day, getting dressed, doing their thing. Good for them. <laughs> I love them. I have been in my PJs and my gym shorts. I wore flip flops for two months straight. I think I had not had long pants on more times than I can count on one hand in six months. <laughs> yeah. Only every Sunday at church, I think yeah. has, has been yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> well, even in, in Colorado, we haven't been, I mean, we haven't even been able, we didn't, well, we didn't be able to go to church for a yeah. long time. Yeah. Well that too, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I, I totally, think that that was a flawed mentality of mine for so long that Agreed. for whatever reason you had to have this different life here and here it's it's a lie i think it's the it's the world and and maybe y'all don't deal with that but it's something i really struggled with and i'm just coming out of the fact that like hey you're you at work you're you at church you're you with your family mm-hmm. you're the same person with different people and you need to love people the same and yeah. you know, you adapt and do what the situation calls for, but you're not a different person at work. And it's honestly, and this is a kind of a trendy thing now in, in the social media realm, it's like being transparent and kind of just showing who you really are. You know, people need to see that to know that you as a leader, you're just a human. You're just yeah. a person. I'd go a step further. I'd say, um be who you want to be everywhere all the time boom there's another bomb be who you want to be fake it till you make it is one of the misunderstood mantras but i think i, think I love that. i interpret that... fake it till you make it as be who you want to be if you if you are not the person you want to be then you should fake being that person until you become that person it's really just building habits it's... yeah i love that that was one of your early podcasts where you went through that i think fake it till you make it might have been my first video i ever recorded and posted oh yeah maybe it wasn't a podcast but it, it was it was one video. of the very first <laughs> things you you posted i really really took that to heart i first had that said to me in a professional setting when i was hired on a school uh, to the first job at that engineering consulting firm where it's like when you're out on a job for a client even you know even if it's completely unrelated to the ask if they ask you hey you know we need this can you guys do this the answer is always yes yes yeah and then you always. go back and, and figure, figure it out, out. Yeah. in private. Sure, sure. But the answer is always yes. You fake it till you make it. I had a, a mentor of mine in my early career. You know this individual. And, well, he was a, I he do was know a, cons- the he was a consultant who I traveled with. He still was there when I worked there. Yeah. So I, cool. got, I got to know him super well, and we're still friends and, and uh, talk every once in a while, but he always said, fake it till you make it. And he gave me that same advice. The answer is always yes. If, if the, 
client needs something, yes, sir, we can do that and we'll go figure it out. You know, mm-hmm. and that and that's kind of an engineering mindset, I think, too. Yeah. Is that we're problem solvers. We I mean, can figure honestly, it out. Honestly, that's the, really the only thing from engineering school that I use still in my professional life is it taught me how to figure stuff out. And that's, I mean, and I think that's why, I mean, most of what I do now is what somebody with a chemical engineering degree might do, but I'm not doing like hard chemistry calculations and equations and chemical design. Right. I just need to be able to figure stuff out. Sure. Sure. So Steven, this has been great. I think we need a refill and some alone time. If you were going to leave your grandkids, your great grandkids, you know, if one day, imagine we were sitting here watching a podcast of our great, great grandpa talking with our great, great, great uncle, smoking cigars, chilling in Houston, the day their mom or grandma was born or, or, you know, the week their grandma was born or whatever. What would you leave them with? Yeah. Do you is have it, a, Do you have any insights that you want to leave to the generations? Is she, is she to come? week old today? Is it today? It was Tuesday. Tuesday was a week yeah, old. Yeah. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Those are cliches. Fifty oh, years from now, this guy's word. It's not a cliche. Well, I'm getting there. <laughs> Those are cliches that everybody knows, but not a lot of people know. Jesus said that. Trust your Lord. I'm, I'm going to think about this because that's a powerful question. It really has made me think about what we're able to do with podcasts now because like my children and grandchildren would like this will be around. This is so cool. That's the perspective, bro. We talk so much about, and, and I hear it's so cliche. I posted about this recently. Actually it might've been in my last podcast. We talk about, you know, what are people going to think of you at your funeral? Like, I don't care what people will think of me at my funeral at all. I care about the generations of people that I'm going to impact their lives. And they could hate me at my funeral for all I care. But, you know, Michael Jordan had this quote, and I'm poorly paraphrasing, but he basically was like, I push people when they didn't want to be pushed. I challenge people when they didn't want to be challenged. I did what I had to do. to win and that's because that's who i am and if you don't play that way don't play that way but that's how i play and i know i didn't use that quote right but it's like that just drives it home to me it's like it's not about people liking you and it's not about how people are going to remember you at your funeral it's about what are you going to do to drive home important things with the people you love with people beyond that with anybody you could possibly ever reach how are you going to impact them in a way that's lasting and meaningful and eternal and not temporary and fleeting and folly? Something just came to mind. I would say this. I never in my entire life have regretted doing what my conscience knew was the right thing. And my only regrets, all of them are when I did something that my conscious knew was not the right thing. Even, so even when it's hard, doing the right thing always ended up benefiting more than just me. And people might hate you for it. Yeah, but it's, it's unselfish leadership. 
doing the right thing. Trust your conscience. Don't grieve it. Your motivation matters. And we have a conscience for a reason. We have our motivation. Our motivation matters. And for all you leaders out there, Stephen Swanson has been a huge impact and a leader in my life. He's taught me generosity. He's been so generous with me over the years. Back when he was an intern making big bucks, working for oil and gas, and I was a poor college student. He bought all my beer. It was very nice of him to do. You still got those boots? He bought me some cowboy boots, my uh, lizard skin boots. My first pair of cowboy boots. Well, not my first pair, but my first, first adult pair. First pair of exotic skin boots. And definitely my first pair of exotic skin boots. I still remember, especially when I was out of school, those couple years when we drove you back to school together. And, you know, I'd party and fly home. And I remember going to Sam's and just stocking you up on beer and groceries. and uh, He filled our fridge with beer. And we loved him for that. Oh, man. Those were <laughs> such fun trips, man. So another, another thing I'll share about Steven. He did a bodybuilding show one time. I really wish we wouldn't tell the public these stories, Phil. There's plenty more stories. But he, he did a bodybuilding show. <laughs> and he was good. He was very good and challenged me as moral support to do the diet with him. And, you know, we lost weight and we got in real good shape. And that discipline, that physical discipline is so good. And I think it's a great example of motivation in action because I think there's people in that industry that probably have the wrong motivation and it leads them down a path that you don't want to be on. Mm -hmm. But if you're the type of individual that is doing those things for the right motivations and training your body, bringing your body under submission, self-control, I mean, that diet that we did is exhibit a of learning self-control. If you can do that, you can do anything. Yeah. I really believe that. So having the right motivation, what Steven said a minute ago is so important. If your motivation's wrong, everything you do is going to fail. So make sure. And when I say fail, I don't mean you won't achieve it. I mean, you're going to get there and you're not going to like yourself. You're going you're gonna to hate it. You're not going to like who you are when you do get it. Mm -hmm. And people talk about that all the time. These, these super successful people that have all this money and all this worldly glory and all these things. And they literally are struggling with suicidal thoughts. And I think it's Suicide yeah. Awareness Month. So, you know, so motivation matters. And if you leave with anything from this, remember, don't go against your conscience. What Stephen said, check your motivation and do what's right leaders do what's right even when it's hard that's that courage aspect they have the courage to stand up mm -hmm. in the face of anyone that's challenging them and do what is right no matter what the consequences i wanted to also say to your subscribers i believe in the go lead everything idea i love what it stands for and i would challenge you to go lead everything but use that sprints mentality. Start with going and leading one thing and don't wait. Start now. I love it. Start now, everybody. So you can find me at skswanson37 at gmail.com or Stephen Swanson, Stephen PH on LinkedIn. Look me up.
Steven, pleasure you having me on the show, brother. Love you, man. It's been great. This Love you, great. too. If you enjoyed today's show, give it a five-star rating. Follow, subscribe, and head on over to GoLeadEverything.com to learn more about the Go Lead Everything movement. For more great content daily, follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at RealPhilSwanson, Facebook and LinkedIn at Philip Swanson. And for videos of these episodes and other great video content daily, subscribe to the Phil Swanson channel on YouTube. Now go 